even get the date because I haven't been informed of the date. It's sometime. It's either the second or third week of July. They need somebody who can run the kitchen. They need three or four kitchen workers, a nurse, and an activities director. So be in prayer for that. Also for the Chafer Conference coming up on March 16th through 18th. All the details will be taken care of there. Also, several people have been asking me this, and we're about to get the uh, brochure done for the and up on the DBM website. We are going to Israel next year. We will be departing on Monday, December the 19th, and returning on the 31st. Actually, we leave there like at 10 minutes to midnight or something like that on the 30th. And so we get back on the 31st. And so that will be about a 10 or 11 day Israel trip and information for that will be on the, on the website. Yes, we will be there over Christmas. No, we will not be going to Bethlehem. That's almost like a solid sentence. We went to Bethlehem this last year. We went 10 years ago. Uh, the church, number one, the church is being renovated. So it's, you, you, you can't even go in the main, main part of it, but it's just a zoo. And at Christmas, it's going to be a zoo squared. It is just going to be crazy. And, uh, Barb's over here nodding her head because that's pretty much a consensus is why go back? So no, we will not be going to Bethlehem, but we will be in Jerusalem at that time, which would be great. Uh, so that information will be up on the DBM website and spread the word, let people know, and we'll have, uh, like I said, we'll be able to uh, download that before before long. I think that's it. Oh yes, one other one other comment. Uh, Monday night, uh, Babs Miller, the wife of State uh, Representative Rick Miller from Sugarland, who's spoken here to the men's group and is a good friend. I first met Babs and Rick over 10 years ago at the pre-trib conference, and that was before I even moved back to Houston. It was probably 12 years ago. And she's just a, was a great believer and really involved in a lot of different, different things, pro-Israel causes, also a lot of, uh, a lot of political things, and just, just, she was truly his right hand. And uh, her memorial service will be next Friday afternoon. Some of you knew her, uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, next Friday, uh, February 12th, at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. And the pastor of Sugar Creek and Andy Woods and I will be speaking at the, uh, along with others, I'm sure, speaking at the memorial service. So I think that's just about it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we will have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we're in right relationship with God, which simply means to, uh, confession simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God 
uh, through silent prayer, and when we do that, we are instantly uh, forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to and that we have your word that gives us confidence, it gives us hope, and it gives us strength in difficult times. And Father, uh, we are particularly mindful of Rick Miller as well as Chuck Hagemeyer and the fact that during this week you have uh, taken both of their wives home to be with you, and this will be a test for both of them. We pray for them, we pray that for your strength for them, and we pray that uh, believers around them will, will encourage them. Father, we also pray for folks we have in this congregation, at least two that we know of, who have uh, lost their jobs, and we pray that you'd provide uh, jobs, income for them, and that this will be a great time for them to strengthen their faith, trusting in you. Father, we thank you for your word, that we can count on it, we can trust it, we can rely on it, and that it is more real and more true than anything else that we uh, know of in this life. And Father, tonight as we continue our study on uh, the infallibility and inerrancy of your word that you would help us to understand how important this is and that it might encourage us and strengthen our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are studying in First Peter. This is part of our First Peter series. But as happens many times over the process of a study of a book, we come to certain topics, we come to certain sections and doctrines that we need to take some time to develop and this is one that, as I've said in the last few weeks, this is one that is particularly significant, and it seems like the battle for the Bible goes on and on for generation to generation, because this directly impacts our understanding of God's authority. And what is at the core of the angelic conflict? It's the authority of God. Satan's original rebellion was against the authority of God. He rejected the authority of God and wanted to be set himself up to be worshipped as God. And so this issue of authority is at the core of so much in Scripture, and its corollary is either uh, humility or arrogance. Arrogance rejects divinely established authorities. Humility submits to and is obedient to the divine, divinely established authorities. And so this battle rages on. And in, um, in the 1970s, it seemed to have come to a head within evangelicalism. And there was a conference in Chicago called the uh, International Conference on Biblical Inerrancy. And you can look that up on the Internet, and you can read the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And that has become the norm for... Uh, for understanding the inspiration and fallibility of Scripture. And as you read through it, you will notice that the way they articulate the doctrine after they've stated what it is, is that they have a section that says what it is and then what it isn't, what it is and what it isn't. And so we understand truth not in, not only in terms of a positive expression of this is what the Scripture means, but we also need to, in any good pedagogy, and this is true on any field, 
to make clear what it is not. And that in, that helps us develop critical thinking skills. And for example, you can read a, a doctrinal statement at a church that says, we believe that the Bible is authoritative in all, and inerrant in all matters of faith and practice. Now that's fine as far as it goes, but that doesn't say it all. We believe the Bible is inerrant in every area it addresses, not limited to matters of faith and practice, where it refers to historical events, where it refers to economic uh, things, whether, whether it refers to political things, whatever area it addresses, geography, history, whatever, it is without error. It is without error in everything that it talks about, and that is a distinction, so we have to be careful uh, to not uh, read something into statements uh, that aren't there. And this is often, uh, I, I believe that you have a lot of Christians in statements that are just duplicitous. And that is a, is a great problem because they want people to think they believe the Bible, but they really don't. And I was at a, at a church here in Houston and many people believed the pastor was really solid, but with a little bit of biblical education and understanding something called neo-orthodoxy, you realize that when he talked about a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was not talking about a physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was talking about a spiritual resurrection. And that's neo-orthodoxy, using orthodox language, but with a new meaning. And it's, it's very, very deceptive. And so a lot of people will read into these statements. So we got into this through these statements in 1 Peter uh, 1, 10 through 12, which describes something about the, the mechanics of the reception of prophecy among the prophets. But it reveals to us that these prophets who received this re- revelation in the Old Testament inquired about it. They had to study it. They had to think about it, which addresses one of my other pet peeves, is that there are many people, especially in doctrinal churches, and I'm not sure I like that term, all churches should be doctrinal, should be teaching churches, but that get this impression that if somebody has the spiritual gift of pastor teacher, they can just open the Bible and teach. Folks, that's mysticism. There is nothing that gives the pastor a, a, a free from error uh, card so that he can just open the Bible and he'll automatically understand what it means. The gift of pastor teacher is not a revelatory gift. The gift of pastor teacher is a communication gift, but he has to learn how to study the word and he has to learn how to analyze the word. He needs to know the original languages. He needs to know Hebrew and he needs to know Greek and he needs to learn how to do exegesis. And in fact, a pastor who is not referencing technical Greek and Hebrew matters in an understandable way from the pulpit to help folks understand what the text says, it's not doing his job. He has fallen short of the standard. We have, it doesn't have to be esoteric, and it doesn't have to get uh, so technical that, that you're not teaching a Greek or Hebrew class, although sometimes I know people think that. But if I'm going to stand in the pulpit or any pastor is going to stand in the pulpit and says, well, this is what this verse means, and then you quote the verse and you state it, and the way you're translating it isn't like it is in the, in the black and white text in front of folks, if they're thinking people, 
they're going to say, well, why is it that you say it means this when my translation says that and the guy next to me's translation says something different? Why are you saying it means what you say it means? And so it goes to credibility, helping people understand uh, what the text actually says. It's like the verse I talked about Sunday morning in, in Malachi 2.16 that, that in many translations is either translated as God hates divorce or God said, I hate divorce. And in the uh, Russian synodal text, it says, if you hate your wife, divorce her. Now, we think, well, they just didn't know any Hebrew when they did that. Well, that's not true. There are actually some English translations and some English commentators that think that is how the Hebrew should be translated because it's very, it's an extremely vague or ambiguous way of, of, of stating something. And so there's a lot to that, and we'll get into that uh, on Sunday morning. But just to point out that the pastor's job is to develop the skills to study the word and to teach the truth. We're hand, a pastor is the highest calling on the earth because a pastor's responsibility is to feed the sheep. And he does that by teaching the truth of God's word. And because it is the infallible and errant word of God, we have to take that seriously. And we have to have high standards for who we allow uh, to get into a pulpit and to, to pastor. And they used to have high standards. Presbyterian church tradition always had high standards. You always had to have an, a high education. And then, uh, unfortunately, some other traditions just thought that anybody who had the so-called call of Jesus had a right to get in the pulpit. And so that's why we have such fragmentation in American churches and why there's so many differences of opinion. It's just part of the satanic attack because when people in the pew hear 25 different interpretations of a passage, well, they go walk away and they say, well, nobody knows what it means. And it leads to a spiritual agnosticism, which is, and, and then people just drift away from church because, well, it's just one guy's opinion over against another guy's opinion. And that's one of the reasons why I take the time to try to show why the Bible says what I'm saying it says so that people can understand uh, the rationale behind it and that, that uh, I've, I've done a little bit of homework. So... Uh, what happens in the process and the mechanics of, of inspiration is God communicated information to the writer of Scripture, and then he wrote it, and somehow mysteriously within that process, within that process, they were able to, uh, God would superintend or govern or oversee the writing process so that without interfering with the individual author's personality or style or other fa- human factors, he would still record exactly what God wanted him uh, to record. And so we're, we're probing this now because this is such an issue today, uh, as I pointed out in the previous lessons, that we need to understand this doctrine. So we've been looking at the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, and here's our long definition. That God, and I just want to focus on the first part of it. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. Some people, Dr. Ryrie used the term superintended, 
And that's, that's not, I don't think superintending in this kind of a context, we think of a superintendent of schools or the superintendent of a building. Uh, we, that's not necessarily a user, user friendly term. So I try to use something a little bit different, uh, here, but that God the Holy Spirit's the primary author, human writers are the secondary authors. We see that in passages like 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 16, 3, 16 being the key verse that all scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, the noun there, theopneustos, doesn't mean inspired of God, but that he breathes it out, theos plus the noun, um, relating to uh, breathing it out. So that was the first point that we made, that the Holy Spirit is the primary author of Scripture. And this is also emphasized in Second Peter 1, 20-21, that God spoke to us at the end of verse 21. God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, I went through a lot of passages as we studied that to show that this is the internal view of Scripture, that in the Old Testament you have places where David would write a psalm, but then it's quoted in the New Testament as God said. And so you have other passages that emphasize that somebody spoke by the Holy Spirit. We looked at those passages, but tonight what I wanted to do is just throw in some other quotes to show you the view of the early church fathers. How did the early church understand the inspiration of Scripture? How did they look at at the process of inspiration? And by early church, I'm talking about the period that's sometimes referred to as the apostolic fathers. These were the um, usually students or disciples of apostles, and they were in that first generation from about uh, 70 A.D. until about 150. Now, I'm going to go a little bit further than that into the next section. There's an overlap. Usually church historians then break it down into uh, the, the next period is the period of the, uh, of the theologians and the apologists. But I just want to go up to approximately 200, early 200s, just to give you a little bit of sense that the early church fathers clearly understood the process of, of inspiration. So we have Clement. Clement is the pastor in Rome. If you're Roman Catholic, you, you've been told that he's the first pope. But he is the, he's the pastor in, in Rome. His dates are A.D. 30 to 100. So he, is, uh, he was led to the Lord by uh, someone in Rome. We know it wasn't Peter, probably not Paul. Peter wasn't there until just before he died. So Peter was never there to establish the church in Rome. And Clement was the pastor there from approximately uh, 60 to 65 until the time that he died. And he wrote a, a letter to the Corinthians, which is often quoted in, in a collection of works called the Apostolic Fathers. And in that work, he says, uh, related to uh, the divine author of Scripture, he says, let us act accordingly to that which is written. For the Holy Spirit says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, quoting from Jeremiah 9.23. So he understood that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate primary author of Scripture. And another quote from Clement, and uh, also from the first epistle to the Corinthians, he says, for he himself, by the Holy Ghost, thus addresses us, Come, ye children, hearken unto me. 
uh, Psalm 34:11. So he says, look at carefully into the scriptures, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. So he clearly sees God, the Holy Spirit, as the author of scripture. Then another early church father is Justin Martyr. Uh, Justin's dates are 100 to 165, 100 to 165, so he's a witness in the, in the uh, early part of the second century. And he says, we must not suppose that the language proceeds from the men who are inspired. In other words, they didn't originate it, but from the divine word which moves them. He's saying in the original from the divine logos, which is re- related to Jesus Christ, the divine logos which moves them. Their work is to announce that, announce that which the Holy Spirit descending upon them purposes through them to teach those who wish to learn the true religion. So he clearly sees the primary author as God. Another key figure in the early church, one of the most important, is mid-2nd century. Uh, his name was Irenaeus. He's the Bishop of Lyon in France, and his, one of his most significant works is Contra Heresis in the Latin uh, Against Heresies, as we translate it into English, and he was writing against the heretics, the, the false teachers, those who were distorting the person and the work of Jesus Christ, those who were trying to introduce other uh, writings. By the mid-second centuries, when you start picking up some of these uh, other Gospels uh, that are talked about by, by some people today. And so he's writing against them. So his works are, are very, very important. He said, we should leave things of that nature to God who created us, being most properly assured that the scriptures are indeed perfect. The scriptures are perfect. That's inerrancy. The scriptures are indeed perfect since they were spoken by the word of God, the logos of God, and his spirit. So it's talking about how his view is both Jesus the second person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, are involved in the process of revelation. And then we have a guy who's on some days he's a good guy, some days he's a really bad guy, and that's origin. Mostly he's really bad because he introduced a lot of Greek philosophy into the theology of the early church, and he is also uh, someone who is... Um, and introduces allegorical interpretation into the early church. But he understands, um, he understands inspiration and he says, therefore we shall endeavor, so far as our moderate capacity will permit, to point out to those who believe the Holy Scriptures to be no human compositions, but to be written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's his work on the first principles, uh, usually referred to by its Latin title, De Principii. Okay, so then we have the, their affirmation of human authors. Uh, and in this lengthy quote, this is from Justin Martyr in his work, uh, Hortatory Oration to the Greeks. Remember, he's early part of the second century from 100 to 165. And he says, For neither by nature nor by human conception is it possible for men to know the thing so great and divine. So he's got such a high view of revelation. We can't know those things through revelation. We can't know those things through rationalism. We can't come to know those things through empiricism. Uh, they are far beyond our knowledge. He says, but the gift which then descended from above upon the holy men who had no need of rhetorical art, 
nor of uttering anything in a contentious or quarrelsome manner, but to present themselves pure to the energy of the divine spirit in order that the divine plectrum itself descending from heaven. So he's using a, a musical sort of analogy descending from heaven and using righteous men as an instrument like a harp or a lyre might reveal to us a knowledge of things divine and heavenly. Wherefore, as if with one mouth and one tongue, they have in succession and in harmony with one another taught us both concerning God and the creation of the world and the formation of man and concerning the immortality of the human soul and judgment which is to be after this life and concerning all things which it is needful for us to know and thus in divers times and places have afforded us the divine instruction. So he's emphasizing human authors. Uh, We've also seen he emphasized the divine authorship. So he sees dual authorship in Scripture. Another quote from Irenaeus, contra heresis, against heresies, let us revert to the scriptural proof furnished by those apostles who did also write the gospel. The writings of those apostles, being the disciples of truth, are above all falsehood. So this tells us that he understands human authorship. The other quote earlier was on divine authorship. And then Origen as well speaks of of, uh, of human authorship, that this spirit inspired each one of the saints, whether prophets or apostles, and that there was not one spirit in the men of the old dispensation and another in those who were inspired the advent of Christ. In other words, it's the same Holy Spirit inspiring the Old Testament writers as the New Testament. There's not going to be a contradiction. Um, so this is clearly taught throughout the churches. So he is affirming uh, that same principle. So we've seen in the definition that we have here, and this is a paragraph taken out of the doctrinal statement for West Houston Bible Church, that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor. So we have the divine author and the human author, and then the result is that his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages and in the original, we could add, the original autographs. That's Inerrancy applies to the original, not to copies. Um, and so he then goes, the definition goes on to say, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, before we go any further, I thought this would be a good place to introduce you to the different views that are out there today and have been related to uh, inspiration and related to what's the matter? Okay. Related to the inspiration of Scripture. Okay. The first is the orthodox view. Orthodox view. Most evangelicals hold the orthodox view of Scripture. Orthodox is a word that refers to that which is straight from ortho, like you're going to go to uh, the orthodontist, he's going to straighten your teeth, okay? So ortho has to do with that which is straight. Um, orthodoxy has to do with correct or straight teaching from um, from the word didache. Okay, the orthodox view that the Bible is divinely inspired in its very words, we'll talk about that in a minute, tonight's night with a lot of de- definitions, 
including matters of history and science. So everything that, that the Bible, when it touches on science, it's going to be accurate. You always hear people talk about the conflict between the Bible and science, but nobody has yet, except on human origins, really found something provable, demonstrable, where the Bible conflicts with science. The, and, you know, of course, the, the conflict that everybody brings up is the conflict with Galileo and the Roman Catholic Church. And they present that, that this is a conflict between the Bible and science. That, that the Roman Catholic Church said that the, uh, took a heliocentric view and the, and, and, and the Bible took a geocentric view of, of the universe. But the Bible doesn't do that. Not, not, not anywhere. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Church did, but it wasn't, they didn't get their geocentric view from the Bible. They got it from Aristotle. And by the Middle Ages, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was so compromised by Aristotelianism that, that that was their view of science. And so the conflict was between uh, old science, Aristotle, and new science, which was based on, on more up-to-date empirical knowledge. So it's not between the Bible and, uh, and science. So the orthodox view is that the Bible is inerrant in everything, and the inerrancy and inspiration extend down to the very words. And now, by the early 19th century, with some precursors back into the 18th century, the scholars began to cast doubt upon the accuracy of the Scripture. It was at the same time that they were beginning to come up with dating techniques, that doesn't mean they were going to go out with new new uh, new partners, but new to to date rocks, to date the age of the earth, and they were beginning to come up with these ideas that the earth wasn't just six or eight or ten thousand years old, but that it was maybe fifty or sixty thousand years of age. Initially, they they weren't into millions of years, but that didn't fit a biblical chronology. So there were different ways that people were beginning to try to assimilate that and solve that problem. But this was a foundation of liberalism, liberal theology. I think there's a relationship between liberalism as as a political philosophy and liberalism as how you view Scripture. But uh, this is the development of liberal theology. It rejected the authority of the Bible. It is the uh, child of the Enlightenment, a rejection of biblical authority. So liberal theologians... And I put in parentheses there, these are the, those who deny supernaturalism. They deny that God can uh, reveal himself to man. They deny the reality of miracles. They put their ultimate knowledge totally and exclusively on empiricism and rationalism and deny the ability of revelation. So revelation is excluded completely from their data, data set. So they believe, and liberal theology came along and was at the other extreme and said that only parts of the Bible were divine. Of course, you'd have arguments later on about which parts, because somebody might think one part's divine, not somebody else would say something else. And that ultimately went to seed in what was called the Jesus Seminar in the 1990s, if, if you remember. And that was a bunch of esoteric uh, intellectuals who were educated far beyond the, the, their, any credibility, and they went along uh, marking passages in the Gospels that on a scale of one to five, um, 
determining how whether or not Jesus would have said that. And it's all determined by their presupposition of what Jesus was like. So they create an idol in their mind of what Jesus is, and then they, they take the statements of that idol, and they superimpose that back on the Scripture and say, well, Jesus wouldn't have said that. And so only a very small part, less than 10% of what the the Bible records as Jesus having said, they would recognize as being authentic. The rest of it was just made up later on. So that's the idea of liberalism is that man is smarter than somebody who lived uh, 2,000 years ago. And despite all of the historical validation of the scriptures and the authors of scripture, etc., all that has to be rejected. And so they believe that only parts of the Bible are, are actually divine. And they, they will uh, give a little, they'll say, oh, there's some good things in the Bible. But they also think there's some good things in the Quran and there's some good things in the Bhagavad Gita and uh, uh, any other religious literature. Um, but most of the Bible they reject as myth, and some of it they just flat reject as barbaric, such as going out and stoning your rebellious adolescent children. They would just think that or the death penalty was was barbaric. So liberalism came in in the early part of the 19th century, and it expands its influence uh, after the American War between the states and it, it and it impacts and infiltrates the seminaries by the mid part of the 19th century, and it's in the pulpits by the 1870s and 1880s, and that causes these splits to start taking place uh, in in many of the denominations. Uh, that one of the last to split was the Presbyterian. Of course, all of them split. Uh, in the 1850s, leading up to the Civil War, you had Northern Presbyterian, Northern Baptist, Northern Methodist, Northern everything, because the Yankees just didn't want to pay uh, any kind of financial support to a missionary uh, from the South who might be coming from a family who owned a slave. So they, they all the denominations split. That's why you still have Southern Baptists. They didn't unite. The reason you have United Methodists and United Presbyterians and United Church of Christ is those denominations reunited uh, after the uh, war between the states by the 1870s, 1880s, and, and later on. The Presbyterian Church, anybody know when the Northern and Southern Presbyterian Churches reunited? In the late 1980s. Late 1980s, early, early, and, and one of the issues that affected Houston here is that First Presbyterian Houston was a fairly conservative, um, church and had a lot of fairly conservative Presbyterians in it. And when the Southern Presbytery, re, Southern Presbyterian Church reunited with the Northern Presbyterian Church, they had to affirm the ordination of women as pastors. And so the conservatives at First Presbyterian in Houston, when that uh, unification took place, they left the United Presbyterian Church, and they started a church called Christ Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is right down here on I-10. And for many years they met at Rogers Junior High before they went over there. I knew a couple of people involved with the starting of that church. But that's what they they split over was women's ordination. And um, 
And we're still having battles over that because very few people have accurately taught what the scripture, scripture says about the role of women in ministry. And very few people can, can do justice to handling 1 Timothy 2, uh, 8 to 12 because Paul says, I don't allow women to teach or have authority over men. And, and in, in a post-feminist world, it is very hard for a lot of women who have been infected by feminism to accept the truth of that passage because they want women to be deacons and they want women to be on the church boards. But those are all positions of authority. And Paul says it's not just teaching. It's not authority, not in a position of authority over men in the church. So liberalism came in, liberalism attacked, and then you had a reaction that set in in the early 19th, uh, in the early 1900s, early 20th century. And there was a man by the name of Curtis Lee Laws who wrote a book, uh, several volumes called The Fundamentals of the Faith, which was fairly solid and fairly orthodox. And the fundamentals of faith had to do with the infallibility and uh, inspiration of scripture, the, um, virgin birth, the reality of miracles, uh, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, salvation by faith in Christ, uh, second coming, literal physical bodily second coming, uh, I mean, second coming of Christ, literal physical bodily resurrection of Christ. Those were the fundamentals of the faith. And if you believed in the fundamentals of the faith, then you were a fundamentalist. And at that time, fundamentalism and evangelical were basically synonymous but in the 30s, you had a reaction that set in, and you had a a right wing of this segment that became a little more militant in their conservatism, and they became known as fundamentalists in contrast to the rest of the evangelicals. And then after World War II, you had a rise of an evangelical movement that then got got hijacked by liberals within that group, by the 1960s, and you had the rise of neo-evangelicalism. Confused? So you and, and I've and so we're getting the reason I said that is because all of this has to do all this this fracturing and fragmenting has to do with how you, people viewed the authority of God's word, and so you had these fundamentalists that reacted by the 1930s. And they were reacting against liberalism, and they, uh, their view was that the whole Bible is dictated by God. See, they, they react, they go too far. That they say God dictates every word. Well, you have really different styles between John and Mark and Luke and Paul. So you have to allow for the human, human differences. Now the fourth view is the term neo-orthodoxy. So what happens is you have orthodoxy, which is the straight road, and then you have this reaction to the Bible called liberalism, which takes you way off to the left. And then you have, um, you have liberalism way out here. And then by, and part of the tenet of mid, of, of, of um, liberalism was a post-millennial optimism. Everybody's getting better and better in every way. Late 19th century, we're going to bring in the kingdom, which is now a human-sourced kingdom. 
and we're going to end war and we're going to bring in perfection. And then you had Flan- the, the, the creation of Flanders Fields in World War One, And with the advent of industrialized warfare and machine guns and artillery and aircraft and all of the brutality and horrors of World War One, liberalism was shipwrecked because the optimism of liberalism just fell apart. I mean, we weren't getting better and better. We were worse. And so you had a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth, and that's spelled B-A-R-T-H, who came along and realized that liberalism just didn't work in the real world. And so he said, we have to have a back-to-the-Bible movement. But he only went halfway back to the Bible. And so his the followers of a Bardian theology became known as neo-Orthodox. They went back, they talked about the Bible as the Word of God, but they didn't mean an inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. They talked about Jesus rose from the dead, but he didn't rise physically, bodily from the dead. So they used Orthodox terminology and Orthodox structures, but they didn't have an Orthodox meaning. So that became known as neo-Orthodoxy. And neo-orthodoxy is another reaction to liberalism, but it's not one that returns to a fully orthodox view of Scripture. They did not believe that the Bible was an objective revelation from God, but it was a fallible human record of the revelation that God gave of his past actions in human history. In other words, God does not reveal himself in words, but in events and in broad ideas. So they would say that, well, a lot of the ideas of Scripture are inspired, but not the very words that are part of that that description. And so then by the post-World War II period, you get a segment of liberal evangelicals that come along, and they believe that the Bible is wholly human in origin, replete with historical, scientific, and religious um, religious errors. And they believe that God takes the words and elevates them to some sort of spiritual truth to be a vehicle of his word. So you get this, 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 this development. And then under the sixth point, you get neo-evangelicalism, which came out in, in the sixties. And that has really gone to seed in the church today. I mean, a lot of evangelicalism today is just neo-evangelicalism. It really doesn't treat the word of God as as totally uh, authoritative and inspired. And where you see it, folks, is in their view of the sufficiency of God's Word. That's where it falls apart. Their application falls apart. They talk a good talk, but in reality they don't believe in the total sufficiency of God's Word. If you don't believe in the sufficiency of God's Word then your understanding of the infallibility, inerrancy, and inerrancy of God's Word is really wanting. So uh, a lot of the contemporary debate today is between the Orthodox or Evangelical, uh, uh, Orthodox or Evangelical Christians, the conservative ones, like Norm Geisler, uh, Charles Ryrie's a little older now. He's 90, and he, but he was very much a part of this. So was Earl Rodmacher. These were men who signed the, the uh, Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. But you've got this new crop of evangelicals coming up, evangelical scholars, 
and they do not have quite the high view of Scripture that these these older men did, and that's what gave rise to that quote from the Bob Wilkin article I quoted several lessons back from um, from Craig Blomberg at Denver Seminary, who said that that these men like Geisler and and Thomas and he listed several others. And uh, one of those would be David Farnell, who's out at Master Seminary, is going to speak at the Chafer Conference in 2017. That he, he, Blomberg said these are hyper right wing extreme extremists on the infallibility and inerrancy issue. But those are the men who wrote the standard definition for it. So we see how the evangelicalism has shifted to the left in their understanding of, of, of uh, inerrancy. So. Uh, this is uh, neo-evangelicalism, that the Bible speaks with divine authority and complete truthfulness on salvation matters, but it is not inerrant in historical or scientific matters. This is why creationism is so critical, is that this is at the very core of this. So this is, uh, just to give you an idea and, and help you understand terminology, and then there's another area of terminology we need to deal with, and that has to do with, with terminology related to um, the, the inspiration of the very words. And so in our doctrinal statement, we also have the, st- the statement that we believe that the Scriptures in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek in both Old and New Testaments to be the plenary, verbally inspired Word of God. And then the doctrinal statement defines these terms, and it's important to understand what they mean. Plenary is, a, for example, when Congress meets, when it's the House and the Senate, it's a plenary session. Everybody's there. It's the full House. So plenary means that all of the scriptures, the full scripture, all of the scripture is equally and fully revealed and inspired by God. Whether we're talking about the um, uh, genealogies in the first uh, first Chronicles one through nine, the genealogies in Genesis five, Genesis eleven, uh, Matthew one, these are all equally fully inspired by God. And whether you're talking about Genesis 1 or Genesis 2 or Genesis 6 through 9 with the flood, this is all equally inspired by God and revealed by him. Now, verbal refers to the principles of inerrancy, that inspiration extends to each and every word. So plenary says that all of it is equally inspired. Whether you're talking about a passage in Second Chronicles are you talking about a passage in Malachi or a passage in uh, John or Revelation? It's equally authoritative and equally inspired. In verbal, that describes the principle of, of the, that the very words themselves are inspired, that God did not inspire merely the thoughts or the ideas expressed in the text, but the very words themselves, so that if this word is used in the text as opposed to that synonym, then we need to understand why. Why is it that this word is used rather than that word? And we ought to not quit until we can see why there might be a difference. Now, there may be cases where it's just a matter of style. I think those are few. We see today scholars say, well, this is just a stylistic. That's their default position, that God's just using a synonym for stylistic variation. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. 
There are many places in Scripture where the Holy Spirit again and again and again uses the same word. And in English style, you look at any literature professor or writing instructor, writing teacher, they would say, that's that's terrible. That's just awful. Well, it's not awful if you're trying to make a point. And yet when they these writers uh, or these translators of Scripture come along and they translate those sections, they choose various English synonyms to translate that same Greek word. And so the English reader doesn't get the point. It's not emphasized. So every single word is inspired or breathed out by God, and those words are important. And so it's important to determine uh, what that means, and uh, and to see exactly how how uh, what the significance is. If only thoughts are inspired, then there can be considerable freedom in the choice of words used to express those thoughts. And this is part of the problems: is when you start going to this uh, stylistic variation uh, uh, explanation that lays the groundwork for an idea type of inspiration rather than uh, the various words. But there are many passages in Scripture that make it evident that the focal point of revelation and inspiration is the written word of the Scriptures. And so that is very important. Now, we also have terms like inspiration, which translates the concept uh, or the word God breathed in 2 Timothy 3.16, it means that the Bible is God's complete and connected thought to mankind. It is coherent and it's consistent. So we talk that covered uh, the words verbal, the words uh, plenary, and the word uh, for in- inspiration. Now here we have two other words that are used in the discussion. The word is infallible. Infallible is simply another theological term that was chosen to express the idea that every word is equally authoritative. Uh, originally, let's say 1800, you would say, I believe the Bible's the Word of God. After a while, through the development of these bat- the battles for the Bible, you had to say, to say that, you had to say, I believe the Bible is the infallible Word of God, that you can't break it, that it's all true. After a while, that wasn't enough, and you had to say that you believed that the Bible was the inspired and infallible Word of God. Then you had to say it was that you believed in the inspiration of the Bible, that it was verbal and plenary, and the Bible was infallible. Now you have to say it's inerrant. You add all of these to it just to say what you say, because there's always these battles that take place that attack uh, vocabulary. And so uh, we have the last term, inerrancy, which means that no error existed in the original autographs, the original writing. When Paul wrote, it was without error. When somebody copied it, they might have made a mistake. It's not talking about your English Bible. Your English Bible is not inerrant because it's in English. It's not Greek or Hebrew, and it's not necessarily the original, but it expresses infallible truth. But inerrancy only applies to the uh, to the original uh, document itself. And inerrancy emphasizes that every word, because it's verbal and plenary, every word is, is inerrant. But now you have to insert the word unlimited because there are people who speak of limited 
inerrancy. Don't you love it? Satan is always trying to destroy and to destroy the authority of God's word. And so we have to constantly be on guard against these attacks by Satan. Now, part of what we need to do is understand what inspiration doesn't say, because there's there's misunderstandings about this. And I found this list in uh, Norm Geisler's Systematic Theology. I thought he did a good job with this. He's written a tremendous amount on inerrancy and infallibility. Uh, so there are certain things that inspiration does not guarantee. First of all, he says, it does not guarantee that every part of a parable is conveying a truth. When we interpret a parable, a parable is a story that's designed to teach one thing. It's it's like an analogy. Not every minute element in an analogy is going to walk on all fours. It is the point that the story itself is trying to communicate. And so the not every part of a parable is conveying a truth. And, uh, for example, Luke, he gives uh, Luke 18.2. Second, not everything that's recorded in the Bible is true. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. If you just took that verse out of context, that's not true. Satan is lying. It is a true recording of Satan's lie. So not every verse in the Bible is true because some verses in the Bible are recording a falsehood. Third, this does not mean that the Bible doesn't use figures of speech or hyperbole, exaggeration, in order to communicate certain things. For example, we've seen this in Matthew when Jesus says it's better for your eye to be plucked out. Uh, he's using hyperbole there. He's not talking about literally uh, poking, your, poking your eye out. Uh, fourth, not that all statements about God and creation are, are purely literal. Uh, for example, Revelation 19.15 says that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So there you have various uh, various images and idioms and figures of speech that are used to express uh, to express the truth. Fifth. Not that, um, nor that all factual assertions are technically precise by modern standards as opposed to being accurate by ancient standards. Okay, they're not writing history according to modern standards of history where you have to have 15 footnotes for every statement to make sure that everybody understands you've read everything. So uh, we have to interpret the scripture in light of when it was written. Sixth, nor that all statements about the universe must be from a modern astronomical perspective. In other words, it talks about the sun rising. That doesn't mean they're denying the rotation of the earth on its axis. It is written in phenomenological language. When I talk about the sun's going to come up in the morning, you, you and I all understand that that does not mean that the sun is literally going to uh, be what's moving. It's the earth that's moving. Uh, seventh, it doesn't mean that all citations of Scripture must be verbatim. God the Holy Spirit is the author. He can paraphrase as he wishes. And many times when uh, the New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint, they are quoting a 
bad translation of the Old Testament, but nevertheless, the translation of the Septuagint is true. And so that is, that is quoted. Eighth, uh, not that all citations of Scripture must have the same application as the original. And this has to do with how is the Old Testament being used in the New Testament. And we've gone over that quite a bit. Ninth, nor that the same truth can be said in only one way. The same truth can be stated using different figures, different idioms in order to communicate the same truth. It doesn't have to use precisely the same language every time. Tenth, uh, nor that whatever a writer personally believed as opposed to merely what he actually affirmed in the scripture is true. Matthew 15:26 is a, a, an example of that. So a writer may state something that is reflective of their personal belief rather than... Um, what the scripture says. Eleventh, uh, not not that nor that truth is exhaustively revealed or treated. It's treated uh, accurately, but not exhaustively. We don't have exhaustive knowledge of God's will; only accurate knowledge of God's will, even though it may be limited. Twelfth, that quotations imply the truth of everything in the source it's citing. Titus one twelve is a quotation of a Cretan proverb that all Cretans are liars. That is not an affirmation that it is a true statement. It is using it, quoting it as a proverbial statement used in that culture. Uh, Thirteen, nor that the grammatical construction will always be the customary one. Sometimes it uses uh, awkward or idiomatic uh, grammar in order to convey the truth. So I thought that was an interesting list because people don't always understand how inerrancy works. So how does it take place? We've seen some of this. In fact, I want to stop here. It's a good stopping place. Uh, I want to go through the exegesis of some key passages uh, next time. So we'll just stop here, uh, and that ought to be a good. That's a good stopping place. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the accuracy of your word, because it tells us that you are true, you're accurate, you're omniscient, and it is from your omniscience that you reveal the truth. And so we can rely upon it. It's sufficient. It is more than enough. And that we can trust it fully. And even when your word goes against everything in our experience, uh, we need to trust your word. And that's when we learn that we really trust you. We really believe you. Is that uh, uh, just as Peter walking on the water, looking at Christ, uh, rather than looking at the water, relying on his experience, trusted you, and and when he was trusting in Christ to stay on the water, then he was not, uh, he was believing that over all of his experience, and that's how we should be. Father, encourage us with what we've learned about your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.